Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio. This is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm honored to have as my special guest, bassist, songwriter, and recording artist Johnny Sinclair. We'll be talking travels and the business of music and the life of a career entertainer. We'll get some other insights as well about the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. So thanks for joining <laughs> me today, Johnny. How are you? I'm good. It's, it's nice to talk with you, Dan. Thanks for You're having retro, me. retro, man. You're a retro artist. A retro. <laughs> retro. <laughs> it's a kind world, a kind word for old, is it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's funny how the, the music business goes. If, it, if, if somebody likes it, then it's retro. If they don't like it, then it's dated. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. <laughs> so we'll go with retro. So uh, so where are you from originally? Because I know when, when you uh, started your career, I guess, with the pursuit of happiness and stuff, you came out of Toronto, right? Right. So, yeah, I, I was born and raised in Saskatchewan. Okay. Uh, yeah, I went to high school here and I'd uh, been plunking around in some bands here with some uh, other local musicians um, during the time that my friends were out of high school and in college, I'd started a band with uh a guy named Brian Potvin, who later went on to be in the Northern Pikes. And then okay. that band broke up. And then Jay Semko and I had a band called, uh, what was called 17 Envelope. And Jay played guitar and I played bass, which was really, really uh, an honor for me because he, as a kid here in Saskatoon, he was a, a, a bass player that I really respected and looked up right. to and uh, tried to learn from. So having him you know, be in his band and, and go, no, 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 don't play that. Play, play like this. That was really, it was really good for me. So. Oh, neat. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I didn't know. Thanks for sharing that. I didn't realize that. So you, you had been kicking around Saskatchewan and then how did you make your way to Toronto? Well, at that point, right. It was like, you know, Saskatoon was a smaller city and the, the, the musical stylings and tastes of people were, you know, the people that I would want to play with was, were, were not, was not plentiful here. So of I, course, yeah. you know, my friends were getting out of university and uh, I was like, Oh, I got to get out of here because I've done nothing but work in a record store and playing bands. Uh, so uh, I, I packed it up and I, I, I went to Toronto. Um, and that would have been in like 1984, hmm. September of 84. And I'd uh, had enough money saved up, you know, to put down a, first and last month's rent and maybe live for a couple months on top of that. And then, okay. and then, uh, I had to get a job. So, so I started working in a book and record warehouse. I don't know how much detail you want to go into here, Dan, but, oh. um, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a, a an interesting part of the story because yeah. I'd started a band in Toronto called month of Sundays and, uh, a guy with a guy named Andy Koyama who later went to LA to do movie production audio stuff and uh, our big highlight was we opened up for uh, breeding ground uh, for two nights at the Rivoli mm. and then um, you know it was sort of a tentative thing and I was out one night to go see Jerry Jerry and the Sons of Rhythm Orchestra at the Horseshoe and uh, I'm talking to Jerry after the show because all these bands had come to Saskatoon and um, I'd, I'd met them in Saskatoon so I would I went up to Jerry and I'm like hey Jerry yeah remember me from Saskatoon. Oh yeah. How you doing? We started talking. And I, I said, whatever happened to Mo Berg? Like what's he doing now? Because, you know, he had face crime and modern minds and other bands that uh, had come to Saskatoon as well. I'd actually done lights for face crime one time oh, cool. at, at, at a gig. And, and, um, he said, that's funny. You should ask. He's moving here next week. And I go, well, where's he staying? Do you know where he's staying? I'd like to hook up with him. And I got the number of this uh, girl, Belinda, that he was going to be staying with. And 
So I, I, uh, I called him up and said, hey, I don't know if you remember me from Saskatoon, blah, 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 yada, yada. Anyways, we went for a drink. We started hanging out and he was looking for a job. And by the time that came around, I'd been working at this book and record warehouse. So we were looking for someone there and I got him a job there. So we started spending more time together and he was looking for a bass player. And I was like, oh, maybe I should be, maybe I should audition for your band. And he goes, well, you know, we'd become friends, you know, and it would be kind of shitty if, uh, it didn't work out and, you know, we weren't friends, we weren't friends anymore. And I said, it's okay. Uh, I'm an adult. I can deal with it. And, um, you know, so I tell people, yeah, I think I, I got 51% on the test and I made it into the band. So <laughs> I'm an adult now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, cool. No, the reason I ask, and I appreciate you sharing that because I like to, the path that people take is always different. And it, you know, some people think, well, you just get a band together and you get a song and, you know, it's a very circuitous path that people take sometimes and happenstance and fluky sort of meetings and those kinds of things that lead to quite often lead to those things, right? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, but it's it's got to start with a, a desire or a dream or a want to do that. And, and 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 you see that, that there are people that just have that hunger, that this is what they are and this is what they want to do, and, and they're going to do it. And when we started Pursuit of Happiness, you were three Western guys. Uh, Mo and Dave had moved here from Edmonton. I was here from Saskatoon. And and we were just like, you know, piss and vinegar, you know, poster in our own gigs, doing everything ourselves. Like we were, we were right. indie before yeah. indie was indie, right? You know, we were just, we did an indie 12 inch and, uh, we just, we just did it cause we wanted to do it. And, wow. um, you know, so that got us going. We got gigs. I think our, our first gig was at the Rivoli opening for shadowy man on a shadowy planet. And, uh, we well, opened with I'm an adult now, actually, which at the time we didn't even think like, this is going to be a big song. We just thought it's just another one of our songs. So yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. Cause like I said, I like to hear the path that people take. And I mean, for you, it takes a lot of kahunas to just up and move from, from the prairies to Toronto, like the big city. Lots, lots of guys do that, but I mean, you're on a wing in a prairie. You didn't even have really a plan, I guess. Right. It was just sort of going to see what happens. Yeah. I was just going to. I just, I was just, I was just ready to do it. I mean, a lot of people had gone Saskatoon. There was a big exodus to Calgary, okay, and and points west, Cal, uh, Vancouver. But yeah, I was like, you know, at the time, um, I was into you know working in a record store and into music, and there were bands like you know the Diodes, Martha and the Muffins, Blue Peter, um, even the Vile Tones and stuff like that. That was Toronto. Seemed to me had more of a pull to me than than what was in Vancouver. So okay. I just kind of that's why I headed east. And plus, I had an aunt. I had an aunt in Toronto, so yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's cool, and it, it was an exciting time. Like you know, I'm I'm probably a little bit older than you, but I mean, during the '70s and the '80s and stuff, being in a band was a super cool thing to do. And it was just a fun. All the young bands you talk about, the early bands and the the guys that you played with and stuff. Those, those create a lot of fond memories and and just are great moments in our lives. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I and I and I, I, I was. In high school, there was, at my high school, there was a, a guitar program. You could take guitar, and it was just kind of an easy credit to do, right? And yeah. <laughs> I started playing guitar, and my, my buddy Robin uh, Billington, who I got to move to Toronto after I was in the Pursuit of Happiness, he became the front of house guy for, for Pursuit of Happiness for many years. And he mo- he's since moved on, and he's been doing Bare Naked Ladies forever now. Oh, nice. Uh, but um, he's like, yo, Johnny, you should switch to bass. There's too many guitar players, not enough bass players. And I was like, Okay. <laughs> so so I went out that uh like that week and got a El Degas precision copy bass and oh nice. Started plunking around, you know. 
Yeah, that's what my brother did too, because we both played guitar and there, there wasn't enough bass players around. There was lots of guitar players and lots of rhythm guitar players. Like good lead players are hard to find, but there's lots mm -hmm. of rhythm guitar players and, and lots of guys play both, which I'm sure you still do, right? Uh, you know, not guitar. so much. I can, I can, I still, I like to say plunk around on acoustic yeah. guitar. That's really what, what it amounts to. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. cool. No, it's good. Well, you play with your fingers too, which I, which I do like, you know, I mean, I know some guys are really good with a pick, but I see on your videos, you play with your fingers, which. Well, you know, but I started with a pick. Yes. And those pursuit albums were done with, with a pick. I was still yeah. playing with a pick in that, in that band. And then I got through this point where I became sort of uh, disenfranchised or uh, not really into the, the, the pop scene. And I, I actually spent a couple of years listening to a lot of reggae and it was like, mm. I, that's when I switched to my fingers and it was like, okay. yeah. And, 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 and I, I still play certain songs with a pick, but I yeah. prefer the fingers. So. Yeah. Good. Well, that's the thing when you switch from guitar to bass, like if I ever play bass, which I do the odd time, I have to play with a pick. I just, cause it, the fingers is a different skill, right? Yeah. It's, it's harder. I think. <laughs> yeah. You definitely feel more connected to the instrument for yeah. one thing. And, uh, but there is, you know, I'd spend, I'd spend hours just doing the, the walking finger to finger, yeah. you know, just trying to get yeah, that right. written down. So, well, you make a good point with the reggae too, because that gives it that rolling sort of vibe, right? With the fingers that you couldn't get with a pick, I don't think. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I've heard any good reggae that's been played with a pick. So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, cool. So, so you must have been uh, pretty happy about that because you're you're sort of kicking around, and then you and you and Mo put to Pursuit of Happiness. You got that going, and then you got some success almost right away. And then you're on tour. You did. Uh, you did a couple of, you got a record deal and you did a couple of tours. In hindsight, it did happen pretty quickly. But when you're, you know, when you're down there slugging it out and swinging, you know, we'd played Toronto and we'd started playing the 401 circuit and getting more popular. And we just thought, you know, we got to make a single. Let's, what songs are we going to do? Let's do this song. And it wasn't even, it wasn't even like, this is the song. And But it was, I'm an adult now and She's So Young was the B-side. Yeah. And we put it out. And we did a video, like a cheap independent video on yes, Queen Street. Yeah. yeah, with a, a friend of Moe's who worked for the National Film Board at the time named Nalu Duran. And, and it was, I think the video cost us $750. Yeah. And we put it to much music just thinking, oh, maybe we'll get local play, a lo you know, a local feature. Because Toronto, uh, uh, much music was affiliated with City TV at that time. And City TV had Toronto Rocks and some other music shows. And some and very thought, expensive videos too, we might yeah, add. Yeah. <laughs> so we thought, well, let's just give it a go. Let's do it. And we put it out just before Christmas and we all went home. We all went west for Christmas. And when we came back, it was like, what happened? It was like all of a sudden, it was like Pursuit Mania. We were like yeah. kings in Toronto. And it was like... Uh, you know, we, we attracted a manager, we'd attracted some uh, Canadian labels, but at that point in, in, in history, it was like, oh no, man, we got to get an American record deal. We got to mm -hmm. do that. And um, the first label that was interested was Electra Records out of New York. And we went down there and we played a, a showcase for them at a place called the Cat Club. And we opened for They Might Be Giants. And Electra mm -hmm. came and we were supposed to go sign the contract the next morning. But for some reason, I don't know uh, what happened. Mo made a joke, and he's a, he's a, he's a he's got a great sense of humor, you know. But sometimes I think he, maybe humor is a delicate thing, and it, people can be offended easily. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He made a joke about New Yorkers and New York City or something, and the A and R person for Electra 
was so offended that he pulled the contract. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So we were like, what the, you know, what, yeah. what was that? Whoa, that's really, that's crazy. Anyways, so we went back to Toronto kind of trying to regroup and think what the hell just happened. And we went out on another Western swing. Uh, and um, a woman named Kate Hyman, who worked for Chrysalis New York, came and saw us. And um, this was probably February. And by July, we were recording with Todd Rundgren. So it, it happened yeah. really quickly. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, you know, I've done lots of these shows now and you look back and the timelines from the vantage point we have now, the timelines are really short. I mean, just a few years. And, and of course, even in, as you form that band and you get the success and then, and then it's over fairly quickly too. So the timelines are short. Right. We hadn't even signed the contract uh, with Chrysalis and we were already recording uh, in, in New York, in Woodstock, New York with Todd. Wow. And so they came, they came to the, the, to the property and we had a signing there and then just went back to making the record, which was also really quick. The first record was, oh, it was less than three weeks recorded and mixed. Just cut it, wrap it, freeze it, get it out of here. Wow. So, but that's cool, man. What was it like working with Todd Rundgren? Well, you're just kind of like, (laughs) "Ah," you know, just like, well, just being around him, you could just soak up that energy and, and feel, you know his his very his very cynical viewpoint to a lot of things it was uh, was his sort of brand of humor in a way i guess but um mm-hmm. it wasn't a lot of time I and mean, we, we kind of were like well i wish that record would have taken longer so we could have spent more time with todd you know yeah. maybe wish it could have been like xtc skylarking where apparently they worked on it for a very long time but, well he had to yeah. get down to business i guess too he's probably getting pressure from the record companies and stuff and he had lots of stuff on the go too he was probably daisy chaining projects himself right yeah, and at that point, he, yeah, I think he, he'd expressed to us that doing outside production wasn't really his favorite thing. I mean, he right. produced a lot of great records and a lot yeah. of uh, bands that are very influential. Yeah, uh, but he he said he'd rather you know have been doing his own stuff. So yeah, fair enough. Yeah. And so, did you ever think about moving to the states? Was there any talk of that, or just taking on the big market? Um. I don't know. Think because we had uh, an, an American uh, record deal, we um, you know getting work visas and 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 being based out of Toronto was seemed okay. I mean, it didn't. There was no like real strong desire to for us to move to yeah. America. I don't okay. think it really came up. I mean, being in Toronto, you know, you're like what you know, you're six hours to Pittsburgh, eight hours to Boston, and this is by van, right? And yeah, fair enough. Buffalo's yeah, ninety. Buffalo's ninety minutes. Yeah. Cleveland's four hours away you know yeah. so it's it's a lot of a lot of things are in close proximity but i was just thinking about pursuing the dream you know you went from the prairies to to toronto and then lots of guys went from there to la or to to new york or lots of people go to nashville they still do it people still flock to nashville they go i'm moving to nashville i'm gonna find a pot of gold and be a star yeah i think we were i think we were quite content just to to remain in toronto because i mean for us you know being you know mo from edmonton and Dave was living in Edmonton, playing with Mo at the time, and I'm from Saskatoon. You move to Toronto, it's like, yeah, this is pretty spectacular. That's the big city, yeah. right there. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. I think I think that kind of yeah. was very satisfying to us in that sense. Yeah, and then you got to tour a little bit. I see here you toured with Duran Duran and the Arrhythmics, and did a tour in Europe as well. Yeah, well, uh, so we got to the point where we were, you know, mostly in the Northeast. We were going down on a van and playing our our, our club dates and. Yeah. Um, then the record record came out and it somehow we got on the tour with Duran Duran and um, 
it was, I think, at their at their low point in their career. Mm-hmm. They were like the 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 fever had sort of gone away, and I can't even remember what the record was called. Big Big Thing was that what it was. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um, you know, our we got in the, we, and that was our first experience with the tour bus, and we were just so thrilled. We got on this tour bus, and I think our first date was uh, in Washington D.C. And then we went down to a place called the Fox Theater in Atlanta, which is like a Civil War era theater, like maybe 3,000 right. 3, people. And then the next night you're playing at Nassau Coliseum on Long Island. with Teresa. So their, their popularity was sort of up and down. Yeah. And we kind of went down the east and did sort of did a big happy face of the United States. We did like 21 dates with them and ended, ended in wow. Portland, I think. So, oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, that must have been a neat experience. It was. It was a. It was very much an eye opener, and yeah, they weren't the friendliest people. But enough no. said about that. <laughs> well, it's funny how uh, a lot of guys and a lot of my friends in the industry said that you know some of them are pretty pretty nasty on the way up, and they get a little more humble on the way down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Well, there's so much truth to that right? you know, about burning bridges and stuff, right? So yeah, yeah, for sure. Don't get too full of yourself, and uh, no, just be humble and thankful. I mean, we get to play music for a living. That's, that should be humbling enough and make us grateful. So. Yeah, absolutely. And then you got to go to Europe. How much, how much time did you spend over there? Well, that was, uh, that was a little bit longer. That was, you know, looking back, that was a dream, a dream tour. Um, we flew over to London. Our plane was late. We're connecting out of Heathrow and, uh, the gigs in Rotterdam. We were supposed to fly to Amsterdam and get a bus, but we were late. So we got on this little Fokker and flew straight to Rotterdam and just basically made it to the gig (laughs) and sort of just kind of walked on stage. It was that close. Oh, wow. And we were told if you guys are that late again, you're off the tour. And it was just a, it was just merely a connections air travel kind of thing. But, uh, Hmm. Annie Lennox would do, um, three days on two days off, two days on, two days off yeah. on the whole tour. So, you know, it was two nights in Paris when you so you end up being there for five days, right? Mm. And the same thing in Rome, uh, you're there for a few days. So it was like, it was like a perfect sort of mix of, Hey, we got some time. Let's go, let's go to the Louvre. Let's go to the Eiffel tower. Let's go yeah. to the, you know, ruins in, in Rome. And it was that, it was very, uh, it was just a great experience. And that, tour probably was almost two months i would say almost eight weeks wow we went we went everywhere oh very cool yeah well that's neat yeah and you get to be a tacky tourist a little bit too so that's nice yeah yeah awesome well that's great and then so so you you took your ride there you did a couple albums you got one platinum one gold you're doing quite well but then you use that as a springboard to start your own project with the universal honey how did that all transpire well um when leslie joined the band her and I became pretty fast friends and uh, we started hanging out and spending time together. And eventually, you know, we saw a lot of each other and then we saw all of each other, if you know what I mean. Um, and you know, we're still together to this day. We have a son and stuff, but we, yeah, we started writing, um, songs together and it was fun. There's a lot of downtime and she was very, very encouraging to me to, you know, because at, at, at earlier on, like when we played in uh, bands with, uh, like I said, back in Saskatoon, we were sort of half original, half cover kind of thing, right? So we wrote yeah. our own songs back then. 
but in pursuit, it was, you know, agreed upon that it was going to be Mo's, Mo's songs. And that's always the way he'd done it. And, uh, and I'd, I'd, I'd known about him and I respected him as a songwriter and I was a fan of his. So I, I was like, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. And then Leslie came along and was like, let's just start writing our own songs. And, you know, we were doing it for fun and, and, um, it just seemed to, it just kind of happened that, that, that we, we left and started doing our own thing. Out of the gate, I think we, we put out an EP and it had three songs on it. Um, well, actually, the first thing we did was a cover, a Joni Mitchell song that we were asked to do for, uh, it was a, back in the day, Sloan was on it, Sarah, um, crap, yeah. I can't it was called Back to the Garden. But that Karen, was a compilation uh, we, for, yeah. a, for a cause, uh, I did, I did check that. Yeah. So we did carry and, um, we, 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 we were, we were previously, after we left pursuit of happiness, we had this band called loud factory Okay, and, um, we were a four piece. We had a guy, another guy from Saskatoon on drums named James Pollock and a guitar player named Gerard Potma. And we started playing and we started building the following and we started playing, you know, we were just doing the same thing that we did at the pursuit, you know, poster ourselves get the club dates and pretty yeah. soon someone's booking your shows you know we're opening for belinda carlisle at kingswood and hmm. you know we're starting to do do bigger shows and get known and one night out of the blue just out of the blue gerard says i, I can't do this anymore i can't be a slave to rock and roll i gotta i gotta i gotta i'm, I'm gonna quit i'm quitting the band oh. and we were like oh my god what do we do now so we tried to play as a three-piece for a while which was you know during the grunge era it was okay leslie's a great guitar player but she's no you know, virtuoso lead right. combination player, right? Yeah. She's a great rhythm player. So that was when we got asked to do that song for the Joni Mitchell tribute and we did it. And then uh, we were like, we should change our name. Literally, they were like, okay, guys, what's your name? Because we want to print the, we want to print the CD cover. So what's your name? <laughs> <laughs> so Leslie had this, had this name that was a song that she'd written with her friend in high school called Universal Honey. And we just yeah. went, okay, let's, okay, let's go with that. So then yeah. we put out an e a little EP. Uh, we worked with a guy who now, I think, has Orange Records. His name's Aubrey Winfield. And we put out uh, this little three-song EP. It had Carrie on it as the B-side, but it had two songs, other songs, Just Before Mary Goes and Find Yourself. Right, cool. And we put that out, and it was like we were blown away because Q107, which is a rock radio station in Toronto, started playing Find Yourself. Hmm. And CFNY, which was the alternative rock station, was playing Just Before Mary Goes. So we put out this three-song EP, and two of the three songs are getting played on different radio stations yeah, in Toronto. Yeah. You know? we so I'm like, a bit confused about how they uh, categorize songs. Like, you know, you say alt-rock, or I think somebody categorized your music as college rock, or the pursuit of happiness as college rock one time. I'm, I'm a bit confused about the way they categorize music, but it sounds like it worked out okay for you. <laughs> Don't put me in a box, man. Yeah, you know what exactly. I mean? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it's not very descriptive. It's so so odd and so general. Like, what's alternative rock these days? You yeah, know? well, the corporations are doing it, and the corporations know, Dan. Yeah, I so. guess. <laughs> it's like I'm just playing songs here, but <laughs> yeah. So, so you use the pursuit of happiness as a springboard into your. I mean, you obviously weren't going to get to do your original songs in the context of that project, so you had to kind of you, you kind of forced to, to do your own project if you want to do your own songs, right? It it kind of came it came came to that yeah I yeah. mean um, yeah I it just felt more comfortable than trying to struggle you know to be heard yeah. right it just seemed like yeah okay this sounds like this seems like a good idea right so yeah. I'm not saying it wasn't a good idea I mean we we just put out our eighth our eighth yeah I saw that album. that's a, yeah and you guys uh, did lots it's great we, we've we did we did okay you know we got a lot yeah. of placements in TV and movies and 
we did a year long tour with the Goo Goo Dolls and played yeah. countless festivals and, you know, we had American management. So it was, uh, it was good for Universal Honey, yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. So the songwriting thing has always sort of fascinated me too because I've talked to lots of different songwriters and I've written some many songs myself, but uh, I'm always curious, like, are you chasing a hit song or, or what's the motivation? Because some guys like, you know, Jim Valance and those guys are pretty mercenary, right? They just want songs that are going to be hit songs. Other people, the true singer-songwriters, which seems like what you guys are, you're writing songs from the heart. You're just trying to write stuff that you think is good, hoping that it'll have a commercial appeal rather than the other way around. Is that a fair characterization? That's, 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 uh, that's bang on. Um, you know, we never would sit down and go, uh, okay, the song's got to be this long. We've got to be in the course by this amount of time. Right. And it's got to have this and that and this and that. It's never been like that. It's just always been what flows out. And during the recording process or the production part of it, you kind of go, maybe we could just cut that a little shorter, but it's basically for us, you know, and, and, you know, we think that people are going to listen to this and, you know, this makes it a better song if we do this, but it's not really, it's not really an artistic compromise. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk back about Mo at one point. He said, actually, and this has always stayed with me. It's like, um, so you sit down and you try to write a hit song. And it's not normally what you do, basically. So you sit down, and you try to write a hit song, and it's not a hit. Right. So you're a double failure because you <laughs> you failed at writing a hit song, and you failed yourself for not doing your art the way you want to do it. Right. So. Well, fair enough, but the record yeah. companies are pretty brutal, right? I mean, they were like, "I need a single." Like, so when when Prism recorded their album with Henry Small in the states, you know, they, they did it a good album. They had a major producer, major um, studio. And the record company comes in and says, I don't hear a single here. They have to bring Brian Adams and Jim Valance down to write a song for them so they yeah. can get a single. But I mean, that's pretty brutal at that point. Yeah. Well, that's, you know what? It's going back. I mean, Todd Rundgren told us a story about that too, because on his album, uh, Faithful, uh, there's one side of covers, right? Hmm. And uh, he was told by the record company, Todd, we need a hit. You yeah. know, Todd, we need a hit. So we recorded all these covers and he said, here's the record. You got one side of hits. <laughs> oh well, there you see, there you go, and, and yeah, yeah, but it's it puts the pressure on you, and it and, and it's really it takes away from that artistic creativity, is what I'm thinking, right? Like unless you're geared that way, like like a Jim Balance is a really rare exception because he's just geared that way. He just focuses in on what he thinks will be have a mass appeal, I guess. Yeah, no, that's not, not knocking, the way. Uh, yeah, I'm not knocking that because that's yeah. what he does. That's what he does. Yeah. That's his thing, right? So. But that's not the way most singer-songwriters approach songwriting. They just want to write from the heart. Otherwise, it's contrived, right? Absolutely, yeah. Which is, uh, yeah. yeah, okay, well, no, I appreciate that. And and then is there a message in your music? Like, a, a, you know, I've, I listened to some of you, well, a whole bunch of your songs, of course, as I always do before the interviews, but um, there seems to be a, some sort of a message there about peace and harmony and taking care of things. <sighs> Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, our, our message is have a good time all the yeah. time. No, <laughs> um, uh, I guess that's again. It just that's just what kind of comes out of us. And um, we've never been a political kind of band. Um, right. We've always kept our politicals very close. I mean, um, but yeah, it's just about. I guess it's it's about trying to find happiness and expressing happiness and. Um, Sometimes I think it gets a little dark sometimes, but there's always a light at the end of the tunnel, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, just the name Universal Honey is it has got some other connotations there that could be drawn. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know if that was yeah, intentional no. or not, but I mean, you don't want to preach at people. I'm not getting at that, but other people have, have a message in the music, like, like for example, music unites people, which it does. And we all know that it does. So when you write about those kinds of things, you're trying to bring people together and bring some more peace to the world through music. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, hopefully you get enough people saying universal honey at the same time that it means something, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. No, very cool. And then, and so you alluded earlier to you had some success. You got so a little bit of radio play, and then you've had some uh, film placements. And of course, you're active on the internet as well. So has that worked out for you? Well, it's worked out in in the sense that you know we're still doing what we love, yeah. right? So um, there's times when you scratch my head and go, "Is this a is this a commercial venture or is this a passion project? Or <laughs> what are we doing?" You know, and it's like it's just like we just love doing it. So the questions fall, fall, fall off and we just move on. So, yeah. Well, that, uh, Tom Jackson is a very well-known uh, band groomer out of Nashville. And he made a great point when I, I, I was overseeing a couple of bands and he was grooming them and, and he said, musicians play because they have to, there's something in them that just needs to get that out and just needs to do it. So he said, if you're not one of those people, you're competing against people who are, and they just yeah. have to do it. So, yeah. Well, it yeah. sounds like you're in that category. <laughs> Yeah, there's no uh there's no quitting really, right? So yeah. you can't you can't beat someone who never quits. As yeah, there you go. <laughs> said, right? So So did you did you do any studio work? Did you sing and play on other artists' uh, music as well? No, associates? we've always we've always been uh, pretty I I did play on some guys demos here and there and yeah. um and did some recording, played bass on yeah, played bass for some recordings uh cool. just couple songs here and there and, and some artists that we found in Saskatoon that we were trying to produce. Yeah. And um, Leslie's done actually more. She's um, Big Faith. It was the band after Chalk Circle. Okay. She sang background on their record. Uh, nice. She sang with some Melanie Doan. I think she did some stuff with Melanie Doan. Yeah. And she's uh, she's um, the movie Stone Angel, the Margaret Atwood book. Stone Angel mm-hmm. was made into a movie. It was a Canadian movie. It had some American actors in it. But a friend of hers named John McCarthy did the soundtrack. And the whole soundtrack is basically Leslie's just voice. Nice. Her, ah, yeah. That kind of stuff, right? So. Well, it's cool. The reason I ask that is because it, it, it does, of course, it broadens your your range of people that you know and, you, and your network. But it, it also, I've, I've learned from that, you know, playing with other people, getting different flavors, contributing to other artists and stuff is is a teaching moment too, right? Where you can learn some things. Yeah. Absolutely. If you're not, if you're not, if you're not learning something from the people you play with or the people you meet every day, then, you know, you got your head up your ass and you should probably take it out. (laughs) Fair enough. And then you, so you put out the, uh, you've got this 2023 album. You, you're, you're fresh, you're new, you got stuff going on. I watched the video. Uh, I watched some videos and I checked your website out. So that's cool. It took, took a long time though. You were like 19 years between albums. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, previous to that, I think our last recorded work was, well, it's a little, it's a little funny here, but, um, 2004 was vicious circles. And then, you know, our son was born in 2006. And during that time when he was first born, I'd kind of gone over a bunch of old demos because less than I would just, we would spend our time just together, just writing songs. Like, yeah. You know, an idea of a fun weekend back then was, you know, Friday night, <laughs> we'd get a couple of bottles of liquor and f- figure out some new cocktail and, and drink those and wake up Saturday, 
in our pajamas and just write songs all day, Saturday and Sunday. And, yeah. you know, and that was just kind of what we did. So anyways, I, I was I, 2004 between that and Julian was born in 2006. There was these old demos that we'd had that were only ever mixed down a stereo mix to a, a DAT, a DAT tape. Yeah. And uh, they were just like, well, this isn't really universal, honey. So I collected these songs and I sent them to this guy that we'd met. He was in a band called Poe and we played with uh, Poe at a festival in, in, in Cleveland at once upon a time. We stayed in touch and I, I knew he was a studio guru kind of guy. And I sent him this ADAT. I said, is there any way you can add some programming or maybe keyboards to this and make, and, and, and make it sound better? Because it's just a stereo mix. And he, um, he worked, he worked wonders on it. And, and then we put out a, we put out a, a CD, which was before streaming and we didn't really push it. And, um, it's the band's called BOD, but it's up the BOD, but it's up on, uh, streaming platforms as well. And it's kind oh, of a okay. techno, cool. techno, electro funky kind of thing. So yeah. we did that. And then, you know, in 2010, we were like, well, we're not really playing gigs. The band isn't really doing anything. We're not taking advantage of Toronto. We've got a kid. My mom's alone in Saskatoon. Let's go, you know, let's yeah. make the move, right? As, a, as kind of a quieter life and a good place to raise a kid. And we got out here and we started playing as a duo, just like, because you, because you can't not play, right? It's something yeah. it's, it's in, you got to do it. Yeah. So we started playing around as a duo and then, I joined a men's hockey team and the guy said to me, Hey, you think you could put that duo thing and make a band out of it and play my Christmas party? And we thought, <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. So we, you know, I called up an old high school friend and we found a drummer and we learned all these songs and we played this Christmas party oh, cool. and it was fun. Yeah. So then it was my birthday coming up a month later. I said, Hey, we should book a gig. I'd love nothing more than to play a gig on my 50th birthday. Yeah. Right. So we did that and then we just sort of kept it going as a cover band and we called it undercover pirates. Yeah. And um, being in Saskatoon, we'd always get asked, do you guys play any country? Do you guys do any country? And we're like, no, we don't do any country. Sorry. You know, <clears throat> it's not like I don't like country, but I'd always been more drawn to guys like, would be like, you know, Waylon Willie and that old kind of stuff. And, and yeah, right. more modern, like uh, Steve Earle or something like that. And so, so we learned some Lucinda Williams and some Steve Earle and, and uh, that was just to satisfy the people at the bars that would ask for country because we thought that was as close as country as we could get. And then our, our longtime Universal Honey manager at that time had said, well, why don't you guys just make a record, you know? Yeah. And so we thought, okay, we found a name. We called ourselves Tucker Lane and we wrote some songs in that kind of vein, not really country, not really rock, but kind of. Yeah, it's in between. I, I must yeah. say I, I listened to a bunch of those tunes and they're, they're yeah. good. They're just, yeah, it's not traditional sort of country whining you're crying your beer country or anything yeah but then again you so you can label yourself so we call her we yeah. so oh so uh so this is like americana okay yeah that's what we yeah. are yeah sure. Right? <laughs> sure okay so so under this umbrella of country there's a little or smaller umbrella called americana i guess yeah. right so that's where we we reside and, and then we started doing that and um we've made two two records with that band which is more which is more of a project band where Universal Honey is more of just less than myself, right? So, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I watched It's All Right and Love or Hatred and Paper Wings and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's cool and it's it's kind of a neat. It's sort of an alter ego, but I guess you have to rebrand it. You have to change the brand because it's a different product, right? Yeah. Well, we talked about that too. Like less than that. Like, well, do we, you know, because like Elvis Costello made a, a country record, right? Mm -hmm. 
and people will go, will go off the beaten path and make a make a, a certain kind of record. And you know, do we just do this and still call it Universal Honey? Or no, this isn't Universal Honey. This is something that's different. So, right. So then, Universal Honey, we got the we got all the rights back to all of our music. Oh, nice. And we hadn't had really much up on streaming. Uh, we were like one of those bands, like, well, where are they? They're not on. They're not on Spotify. They're not anywhere. So we got all our stuff back, and we and we thought, okay, this will be. This is just right when the pandemic started happening too, and we're yep. like, well, this will be a fun project. Let's like you know chronologically re-release everything in in order. Maybe every every few months we'll put out a new Universal Honey title, and we could, you know, we were digging up old photos and old maybe demos and stuff like that. Some some mm-hmm. of the releases have extra songs that were just demos that were never used and stuff. Yep. So we went through all seven of those records and we were like, that was fun. We should make a record. And that's what happened. Got the spark again. Well, good. Well, that uh, I saw the video to Any Road Back. That was uh, super cool. You got some success with that. Great song. Yeah, that song got um, video play in Canada and MTV in America actually played it. That's when we were on tour with the Goo Goo Dolls. So that was, yeah. that was good. And then what's the deal with the campfire sessions? You did the unplug thing, and I know you did, you, you did a bunch of covers too. I see the the Chrissy Hind influence with Chain Gang and stuff too. I watched a bunch of those. Yeah, Leslie always gets told, Do you, has, anyone ever, "Has anyone ever told you you sound like Chrissy Hind?" And we're like, yeah. "Yes, yes, yes." yes. <laughs> so uh, we we you know she can sing Chrissy Hind like yeah yeah it's pretty good actually. Um, yeah, that was again that was just like. During the once the first wave of the pandemic, I think it kind of kind of subsided, and people were a little more comfortable with being around people. We set up in our backyard and just invited friends, nice. and we recorded okay. it and filmed it. And um, you know, everybody was sitting on lawn chairs far enough away or as comfortable as they could be with each other. And and uh, yeah, we recorded it in the backyard and just put it out as another something to do kind of project because we yeah, weren't okay. able to get out and go play clubs and stuff. Right. So well, that's what I thought, but I, I wanted to ask you about it because it's a cool idea anyways, he, despite this pandemic or whatever, it's still a cool idea. Yeah. And it was, and, and, it, and we did it with uh, Tucker Lane and we thought, okay, let's, let's do universal honey. Yeah. Right. And so we did universal honey acoustic as well. So yeah, we did it twice actually, and it was it was. I'm glad we did it because it's it's nice to look back and watch and hear, and it yeah, it actually cool. turned out turned out pretty good. So I think so, and and you know the old saying that you can tell if a song is a good song if so you can just get an acoustic guitar and just sing it and people like it, right? Because it's and laid bare, and yeah. that's that's basically how our songs are written is just on yeah. acoustic guitar, right? So there you go. So then I have to ask you about the business side of it. Like you, you're looking after your own stuff now. Like you're not chasing a career or a record deal or any of that stuff. It's you've got the Honey Tunes. Yeah. Well, Honey Tunes was um, the name that we published all our songs under, self-published under with, yeah. through SoCan and all the other agencies that collect royalties for artists, right? Yeah. Um, so we thought, well, why don't we just put these records out as Honey Tunes and make that our, our label as well? Yeah. Which you know, <laughs> it's funny because Dad, we just like we were just like you know. We're doing everything. We're putting out Universal Honey on Universal Honey socials, and we're putting out things from Tucker Lane on Tucker Lane socials. Well, we should be putting out everything on Honey Tunes and then sharing it. The, the band share. Oh, I, I don't know yeah. if that, because we because we have this label, but it doesn't really seem to exist. So, right. Um, so we thought, yeah, maybe that's a correction. But yeah, we're doing it ourselves, um, much like we always have. We, uh, you know, our first Universal Honey record had distribution through BMG. Our second Universal Honey record was with Alert. Our third Universal Honey record 
We'd just signed a deal with Oasis, but they lasted about six months and folded. And then, um, yeah, then the fourth and fifth record were through our management in in Buffalo. And same with our, same with all the four, five, six, and seven were all, all came out on an indie label out of Buffalo. Right. Okay. So, um, would I welcome a publisher? Yes. Would I, would I love to have a, a label out there going universal honey? You should be listening to them, yeah. playing them. Yeah, sure. I can't do all that, right? So yeah. the amount of the workload of just having to do one band is like with yeah. two people is pretty it's pretty labor intensive or time intensive, not labor. It's not really hard work. It's no heavy lifting, but yeah, uh, yeah, right. Well, it's yeah. it's a double edged sword too. That's why I wanted to ask you about that because you know on the positive side, you're in complete control of your career. There's no one sort of breathing down your neck telling you what to do or giving you pressure in that respect. But on the other side of it, you don't have that sort of team of people that are sort of mushing your songs in everyone's face like a pie sort of thing yeah. and saying, "Hey, look, exactly. at, you know, you need that to a certain extent, right?" Yeah, without being obnoxious. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Because um, you know that that was the the rub about the record deals that back in the day as well as you well know that that you know they would put the money in the machine behind you. Now they would take most of it. <laughs> so oh, it absolutely, taken advantage of. But <laughs> no, no free lunch. Yeah, no, there's no free lunch. But <laughs> were you ever taken advantage of or or mistreated business wise? Well, you know, it's a matter of perspective, I guess. Uh, yeah. When I when I left the pursuit of happiness, I was one of the founding members, and I was pretty pretty entwined in all the business. And um, the label actually tried to cross collateralize any future endeavors that I may have to pay back pursuit of happiness, the uh-huh. debt that was incurred with pursuit of happiness. Right. And I had to get a lawyer to to yeah. wangle out of that, and you know, mm-hmm. it cost money, and I lost some gear and stuff. But other than yeah. that, I mean, it was n- nothing nothing horrible. No. Yeah. Um, well, not to get too deep into the the business side of it, but it is, you know, I am curious about it, and I know some listeners are curious about it too. But uh, so, when you record an album with a record company, you have recoupable money, which pays back the money they put out. Right. Um, some deals are structured where if the band folds or if it just tanks, then the record company takes the loss. Other deals are structured where the band still owes that recoupable money, regardless of what happens. Right. Yeah. So there's lots of lots of ways that they're going to get their money and it's like yeah. they take you out they take you out for a nice dinner and you think oh that's great but really you're the one paying for it so, yeah, yeah exactly they're, <laughs> they're reaching into your pocket to pay yeah. for the nice dinner that you yeah. <laughs> no that's cool i wanted to ask you about that because I, I i see that you're doing it yourself and i'm i'm not sure i could do that i'm not quite sure how to how to promote these days i guess some of the social influencers they get on youtube and they get on social media and and they just explode but then they're like 20 years old and full of energy and they're, that's their world for us. Yeah. It's not our world, right? It's not our world. And I have to say, I have to, I have to say in Saskatchewan, we have a, there's, there's Sask music and there's creative Saskatchewan and there's the Sask arts board. And they all, um, either are very accommodating to helping bands or like creative Saskatchewan has recording sound recording grants, yeah, which we've accessed now. Cool for this record and for the last Tucker Lane record. Oh, nice. And as part of that, you can get a uh, marketing grant through yeah. them. And so, you know, learn a lot. We hired, we hired some um, publicists and marketers nice. who, who know how to buy ads on Google that direct people to your music and, right. you know, that tricky internet stuff, right? It's, it's not yeah. TV magic anymore. It's internet. 
magic, yeah, right? Yeah, that's so, right. No, yeah. totally. And you got to be immersed in that sort of world to survive in it because if you're just a rookie and just paying your money, you're not yeah. maximizing what you can get out of it for the money you spend. Yeah, and, and you know, there's so many analytics now too that you can yes. watch and go, I don't know. But musicians <laughs> typically aren't into that. I mean, I glaze over when I see that stuff. I don't yeah. care. Yeah, so. it's to a point like, okay, um, we have this much money to spend. This seems like the best place to spend it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, just get the biggest bang for our buck here, you know. And uh, there's still that, you know, let's throw it against the wall, see if it sticks. Come on, seven, you know, yeah. <laughs> let's go. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that I, I think you have to focus on what it is you love, what what brought you to the dance. It's the music. Like for me, anything that takes me away from the music is something that's marginally interesting to me. I can look at it and go, yeah, it's interesting, but I want to sing. I want to play music. Yeah, exactly. Like, don't drag me away from that. Otherwise, I don't want to be here. I'm not going to be an accountant or a marketer. Uh, yeah. That's not my gig. I'm not that guy. No. <laughs> so, no, I, I, I'm with you on that. Yeah. So where do you record then? Do you, do you like to go into a major studio or do you do most of it uh, at home? Or you have a home-based studio? Um, early on, we recorded like our first uh, Tucker, first Universal Honey records were, wow, like it was amazing. We did, we linked up two 24-track, two-inch tape machines. We're using 48 tracks of two-inch nice. tape on through a Neve console. I love it. You know, mix on an mix on an SSL is a perfect combination. We did that a couple of times actually. Yeah. But later on, actually, we started uh, getting into home recording, right? And you know, yeah. I think Invincible, you can kind of tell, you know, it was like, oh, let's have fun with loops and try and make them sound like drums, and then <laughs> and then I just got better and better at editing drums for our demos, Good. And, and then. And then we would, so we would do the, do the, do everything at home except for the drums. Yeah. And then, uh, we would, we would rent a studio because I was only using like an interface with two inputs. Right. Yeah. So I couldn't really record drums. And then, um, so we'd go to a studio and we'd record the drums and then we'd, and then we'd give it to somebody to mix. And, okay. uh, lately the last few records that we've made are all recorded home everything even the drums are are done here and then okay we still get we still the, the last universal honey record we still have this relationship with dan marfizi in los angeles and we sent him i'd say the tracks that were maybe 88 percent finished and said you know add what you want to add and and mix it for us and yeah and he did and it's you know it's just a happy marriage we love working good with him, no so. that, that that's smart too because uh for the listeners who haven't recorded before, like sometimes when you're recording your own stuff, you're too inside the tune, right? You, you yeah. don't have that fresh ears that you can just take a step back and go, okay, wait a second. Oh yeah. And you're so emotionally connected to yeah. like, it's like, oh, I love that part. Why, yeah. why isn't that part in there? And the, the mixer would be like, well, it doesn't really need it. Just listen to the song. It, it's not missing it. And you're like, you're kind of torn between being hurt and offended to being like, yeah, okay. You know, well, so, yeah. um, there's that, that, that as well. So you gotta, you gotta think like, I, I like, I like the song and I like, I like what it, what's here. And it, it was just a part that I liked. Yeah. I'm not saying I've already come across one, the first person who's heard it and he didn't like it. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, see that, but you speak to a larger point there because, you know, we, we write these songs and we love them and then our friends go, yeah, it's really good. But once it's out in the public, people who do not know you from Adam and it's them, those are the people you have to appeal to. And the yeah. fresh ears helps you with that, where the, the sound guy or the mixer will say, you know, this is, this is what's probably going to draw more people to your music or 
presented in this way. And I, and I've had that experience myself and I'm listening to those people and trying to accept what they're saying. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's a, at first it's a tough, at first, when it, when it first starts happening, you're like, I don't know, man. That's like, you know, that's me, man. That's my art. You know, <laughs> yeah, what's this guy yeah. doing to me, man? He's, he's screwing with me. Yeah. But then you kind of get over it and you're like, ah, as long as it gets out there and we get to go play a show, you know, cause you're either yeah. out rocking and rolling or you're sitting at home thinking yeah. about being out rocking and rolling. Right. So yeah, for sure. And, uh, well, it's good that you got set up at home now too. I'm, I'm doing a bunch of stuff here as well, but you go to the major, I went to a major studio and recorded a bunch of stuff and now I got some stuff going in the basement, but it's, it'll still sound sort of world-class, I guess you'd say just that you want oh, to match. Yeah. That. Nowadays, the yeah. digital world, the digital modeling and all that, it's just like, there's no, oh, yeah. uh, screw AI. It's going to, it's going to be the death of all of us, but, uh, yes, I, you know. I tend to agree, especially yeah. when they can do, you know, they can clone the mix parameters and stuff too. Right. And make another Steely Dan album without Steely Dan kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've heard, I've reluctantly listened to some of these songs. Like somebody had, uh, Paul McCartney singing, um, hello, it's me by Todd Rundgren. And it's like, yeah. it sounds like Paul, but there's no, there's no motion. There's no passion, yeah. you know? And, and I, we were talking about that at, at rehearsal last week and, and Warren, the drummer is just like, you just wait. It's just yeah. starting, you know, it's well, going to be, yeah. yeah, it's going to be. I'm afraid. Yeah. I think he's correct. And, and the analogy I used was if you have a sore back and your back is rubbed by a person or a robot, you don't really care if your back is no longer sore. Like consumers right. are not going to care. They're just going to care about what they like. If it sounds good and you say, well, that's AI, you know, they're going to like, who cares? Yeah. What's AI? Like, yeah, what's that? I like <laughs> I the like song. it. Yeah. So yeah. end of story, right? Yeah. It's, it's, um, why is it always the artists and the musicians? They're the ones that get screwed over. What the hell? Well, somebody made a great point the other day that I didn't think of. And the way they put it was AI was supposed to take on the menial tasks so we could f focus on our art. And right. now AI is going to take over our art and we'll have to do the menial tasks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Come on. Did you get, did you get enough to think AI? I, yeah. What can I, what can I do today to make your life better? AI? It's totally yeah. the opposite, you know? Yeah. So it's, so it's funny. I ask people often too, and you've been around for, uh, for a few decades. And I, I used to ask in my, when I first started doing this, I would say, well, how has the music business changed over the last 50 years? And it usually people just start laughing. Right. <laughs> so, so, but it really is a different universe. Like when we grew up, uh, you know, in the seventies or sixties and seventies and stuff, the world is completely different now. And how do you navigate all of that? That's, I guess that's the larger question. Yeah. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, I graduated in 1980 Yeah, and the party never stopped. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I think like I was thinking about this, like 19, the eighties, Yeah, there was, there was a time when, if you worked hard, wrote good songs, hustled your butt, you could make some, right? You yeah. could you could build a following. You could maybe get a record deal, go on tour. You know, the machine was working. Your records were getting into stores. People were buying them, and everything was working nicely. And then Sean Fanning comes along with Napster, yeah. and boom, it's over, right? So yeah. um, I'm just – speaking of our age, I'm just happy that I got to experience that because – my son, for instance, nowadays, he has no idea of, of the hustle, you know, it's yeah. just a different, it's a different kind of hustle than, you know, I guess it was more tactile the way things were. It was just the way you did it. You, you yeah. know, you, you went 
put up a poster. You didn't have internet. You just didn't have phones. You know. Yeah, that's, that's right. No, it's but it was a magical time, and and those were golden decades. The sixties, seventies, and eighties were golden decades for music and for that whole fun and being in a band was cool. And it was just a real special vibe and a special time that, that as you're right, your kids will never know. Yeah. Yeah. That. Here's another funny story. Is I, I uh, I've been a big album collector. You, oh, cool. you you bought albums when you when you were coming up. That's what Absolutely. you did. You bought records yeah. and you, you played them on your turntable. I never got rid of mine. I kept them. I moved them to Toronto when I moved to Toronto. Wow. Then the records kind of went away and CDs became the thing. I started buying CDs and then I moved back to Saskatoon with a crap load of CDs and all my albums and the albums that I'd accumulated in Toronto all sitting in boxes, you know? Yeah. And another thing over the pandemic was I said, well, I'm going to set up my turntable. I'm going to drag out all my albums and start playing records. And Nice. And uh, I, I did that. And you know what's funny is like back when CDs came out, it was like, well, I already have this album, but I want to get it on CD. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And now it's like, well, I have that CD, but I'd really like to get it on vinyl. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Well, that's yeah, speaking like, to that, that's what boosted CD sales because they were reselling yeah. all the albums they'd already sold you. Well, interesting. Well, that's very cool. And so just a couple quick questions. Um, looking back, anything you'd change about the course of your career and how it was handled and managers, bandmates, studios, record deals? Uh, you know, that's a... <laughs> That's a slippery slope, right? Oh, you, change, enough, yeah. you go back, you change one thing, and my son wouldn't exist. So you yeah. know, I, you, you know, if I if I went left instead of right on a Tuesday in June, who knows where I'd be? But uh, yeah, no, um, I can't. Uh, I can't say that there's anything that I would have done different. Um, no, you know, it's got it's got us to have a put out an eighth album. Yeah. And, you know, had we done things different right at the beginning, we may have made, maybe only made one and that would have been it. Who knows? Uh, you know, I, 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 yeah. Yeah. Fair what enough. If, yeah. Yeah. The what ifs are kind of like, don't, don't, it's don't, fair enough is good, is good, Dan. But, you know, if there's time you spend thinking about that kind of stuff and it's like, yeah. it always comes back to the same answer. Like, nah, leave it, leave it alone. Well, it just depends how you look at it because some people say, look, you know, life is one way linear, man. You're just moving forward. You do what you think you should do at the time and you leave it at that. There's nothing you can do about it after. Other people say, well, you know, one person said, I, you know, I fired my manager because we had an argument and I never should have done that because it changed my career for the worse. Yeah. Yeah. So well, if I could go back, I wouldn't have done that, for example. Right. No, that that's a good point because those are things that are like maybe had a direct impact on your career. Yes. Yeah. instantly and um yeah no i don't uh i don't I, yeah there's nothing i would change yeah okay well cool yeah. well, and you guys have remained consistent apart from that long break that you said you moved back to saskatoon and and had your son and stuff but uh you've been consistent so what do you got going on now are you doing live gigs are you touring have you got uh, well we tried to uh we tried twice to put something together to go out east. I mean, there's family and friends there. And that was probably Universal Honeys. Southern Ontario was kind of our our strongest market. Right. So, you know, I put the feelers out and it was like, yeah, bang, we got we got six dates. Yeah. But the guarantees and the and the expenses weren't really working out. And so we had to cancel twice now. So oh, okay. Yeah. We're gonna try, we're gonna try again. There's some Grant money 
being made available for tour support. So we're going to try for that. And um, because I think that, you know, it's kind of gone back to that regional kind of thing. Like everything goes in circles and cycles, I guess. But back in the day when before record distribution was a national thing, it was a regional thing. And so then you'd have bands like Bob Seger coming out of Detroit, who was big in that area, right? And they weren't national acts yet. Yeah, fair enough. Until I think what early seventies when there was a sort of national distribution yeah. network started. Yeah, so yeah. so I think it's a kind of a regional thing. Like right now we gotta we gotta start playing in Saskatoon to try to get to Regina. We played our we played one gig oh a month and a half ago just as a release party and it went well. And so we have a gig booked at Amigos in Saskatoon. Uh, Tucker Lane is supposed to be playing town outside of Saskatoon. Um, but yeah, you know, it's a smaller market, so you can't, you know, saturate yourself here. So yeah. we got to kind of start a grass fire in here. Maybe go start a grass fire in Regina. Yeah, you know, see if we can get some things going that way again. But it's, it's I think yeah. it's boiled down to being more of a regional thing. Yeah, that could be. Well, and and also the the touring costs. I mean, for people who don't know who've never tried to do that, you put the the calculator basically dictates that because when you look at the low guarantees or ticket you know you get the door and stuff that just isn't going to cut it you got to pay for everything the rooms the travel the the players the per diems whatever you know the whole drill right and oh, it and just then, does not add up and then in, the, in this post-pandemic economy things are super expensive and people are yeah. still there's still people who are aren't going out you know they're yeah. like they just got used to that and maybe Maybe they don't want to go out, or maybe there's still an element of fear. I don't know, but it's not this. It's not what it was like three years ago, even. So no, and and there's bands that have gone on tour for six weeks or eight weeks and come back and owed money. Mm-hmm. So imagine that doing a tour for two months and coming back. You not only are you broke, you owe money. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So <laughs> like you know, been there, done that. But it yeah. was in the '80s, right? You know, yeah. and it was it seemed a little bit easier to recover from. I think now again, it's it, that's the way it's going to be. It's going to be, you know, they say that live is where you got to be, and you got to sell merch, and you got to sell product, and you got to you got to take the whole show on the road, and and and, and make your money that way. Yeah, right. And then again, it's uh, it's a youth rock and roll's always been about youth, and I think that's you know what we need now is some youth to come in and get reignite the market and get people interested in music and going out again yeah i guess uh, that's yeah because the original scene i mean the original scene's always been tough but i mean i've navigated through with the the corporate events or the the theaters or the the you know impersonator shows like the uh, the tributes and stuff i mean there's money there that's how i make my money so you know i spend a lot of money recording and stuff but i don't certainly don't make that back i probably never will yeah, but you know, that's okay. Yeah, I guess it's like uh, it's like guys that wait until they're fifty nine years old and they want to spend ten thousand dollars to go drive an Indy Formula One race car, right? There so, you go. <laughs> you know, my money would be I got ten thousand dollars. I want to get a band and go on tour. You know? Like, yeah, there you go. <laughs> or go in the studio. Like I just spent. Uh, I, I went to the Armory in Vancouver for a few days, but I mean, you know, that's the, you're paying for that, and and mm-hmm. you know, and and the chance again getting that money back is probably never going to happen. So it has to be a labor of love, but you know, for you it is. And for me it is too. So I appreciate that spirit because I have it. Yeah. And that's what we started off talking about was just like, you got, there's people like you said that it's either in you or it's not right. And it's like, I, I've always been a, I've always been a huge fan of people that are just like unashamed. Yeah. And this is what I do and I'm doing it, Yeah, you know, and it's like, you can't stop me. 
Well, and one person reminded me too. He said, you know, like in the last 10 years, lots of the major bands, you know, ZZ Top or Heart or any, they've put out albums too. And they're, they're lucky to sell just a few, you know, 50,000 copies or something. I don't know what the numbers are, but the point being is that they're not met with the kind of fanfare that they would have been in the past. They just have to accept that. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we, it's another thing we were talking about. Uh, I think Drake was the biggest selling artist and he sold 5 million copies. Mm-hmm. Whitney Houston sold 75 million copies. Of yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it goes, you know? yeah, it's a different world for sure. Yeah. You know, so, so but yeah. Um, well, good. Well, I, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time today to share all this. We have a really interesting conversation. I wasn't uh, um, overly familiar with the, you know, of course, the Tucker Lane. I, I'd heard of Universal Honey and and uh, wanted to ask you about the pursuit of happiness, but not exclusively because I know you got other stuff going on that you like to talk about as well. So I appreciate you sharing all that. It's really cool. Well, uh, you know, um, I'm not, I'm not afraid to talk about pursuit of happiness. In fact, I'm very proud and, and, yeah, and so be. happy that I did that. And it's something that I, it's a, it's a time in my life that I cherish, you know, yeah, and, good. um, you know, I'm still playing bass and still making music and we have a band We have two bands now. And yeah. It's just good. It's just good, clean fun. You yeah. know, that's what, what I think it's like, it's, it's, it's our social life. It's like, you go out, you see your friends and. Maybe there's other people there that you don't know. That's always a good sign, right? Yeah, um, for sure. Um, and you get to have a couple of pops and yeah. jump around with your guitar. Yeah. Oh, yeah good grown men, yeah. grown men moving amplifiers and stuff. It's like. <laughs> Many thanks to Johnny Sinclair for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his life in the music biz. More information is available at universalhoneyband.com. They've also got tuckerlane.ca. And they're active on Facebook, Universal Honey, and Tucker Lane Band. You can find them there. Lots of great tunes and lots of great stuff over the years. So check it out. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. And we also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan here.